Hi, you're listening to Your Best with my nanny, Kathy Weckworth. Hi, this is Kathy Weckworth, Executive Director of Best Life Ministries, and you're listening to Your Best, a motivational, inspirational 30 minutes that will help you want to be your best. Hi, this is Pastor Frank Riley, and you're listening to Your Best with Kathy Weckworth. Today's topic is breaking the stereotypical mold. I had a friend many years ago, let's call her Jackie. Jackie went to our very staunch and incredibly traditional Southern Baptist Church, married to a wealthy businessman from the South. He had only one thing in mind for his 30-year-old bride, Jackie. She was to remain barefoot and pregnant. She would stay at home, cook and clean, and tend her five children. Now, I'm completely 100% supportive of that, if that's what you as a couple have determined to do. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what I did. I stayed home and raised my three girls until my youngest was five, and then went to work in a church for their worship department. But to start, I only worked very minimal hours. I wanted to be at home for my kids. Once they were all in school, I went to work full-time as a worship director because I needed to help pay bills as most everyone in today's society experiences. The difference with Jackie was this. Her husband, we'll call him Fred, didn't want her to do anything outside of the realm of the house or children. She couldn't meet any of us for coffee. She couldn't join a Bible study or go shopping. She was not allowed to have a babysitter. No, if we wanted to see Jackie, we went to her house or saw her at church on Sundays. One day when I arrived at her home, Jackie opened the door looking very disheveled. A child on each hip and one screaming in the background, I grabbed a baby and said, let me help. I'll never forget the words she said. No, if Fred finds out, he'll be so mad at me. He thinks I should be able to do it all on my own. I told her Fred won't find out. I went in and began to fold laundry, dry dishes, and tidy up the living room. I called one of our friends over, and she pitched in and helped. The house and children were beginning to take some semblance of normalcy again. Jackie was a stereotype to me. It was what the church expected during that era. It was what her southern husband from Georgia expected during that era. It was what Jackie's parents expected from that era. And Jackie, well, she fit the bill. Once during a somewhat quiet moment of kids playing and babies napping, she revealed to me that her deepest desire had been to grow up and become a lawyer. She wanted to wake up each day, head for her office, and help other people in trouble. Jackie lived in a little bubble, controlled by what was expected of her, never being allowed to become who she wanted to be and definitely living a life that was too big for any of us. She became quiet and withdrawn. When I listened to her speak, I knew that somewhere inside of her was potential to do something really great if she could just have a little wiggle room. But the box of expectancy and the reins of Southern culture held her back and pulled her in whenever she stepped outside of the lines. One day, when I picked up a coffee cake from the store and dropped it off at their house, Fred told me to take it home. His wife would only be serving homemade cake at their house that she had baked. Another time, Fred cornered me to ask if I had helped Jackie with her housework. He said, that's her job, not yours. Jackie lacked for nothing because her husband had money. But Jackie lacked the life of feeling free, valued, and respected for who I think she really was. They moved back to Georgia, and I never heard from her again. I wish that I would read about her somewhere and find out that she was an incredible lawyer or serving as a legal assistant 
and perhaps she is. But while here in Minnesota, she just couldn't break out from the mold that held her in, something like an old silver jello mold from a Minnesota potluck dinner. Well, sometimes we break free from the expectation of others and we find our own trail. Sometimes we stay trapped in the prison of who others feel we should be. I know that my ministry's core verse is how Jesus talks about situations just like this. 1 John 10.10b says, I came to give you real and eternal life, more and better life than you ever dreamed of. God himself has created us with talents, desires, and dreams. He wants us to live our best life and live it to its fullest. But how do we accomplish that when the odds are against us? Sometimes we just don't reach our potential because we let the voices around us control us. Sometimes we don't reach our dreams because we stop ourselves. And sometimes we just buy into the old stereotypical mold and think we could never accomplish that. Listeners, for the next two episodes on Your Best with Kathy Weckworth, my guest, Nelcha Doubleday Kings, will prove that wealth and notoriety don't necessarily make life easier. She'll show us that we can accomplish dreams that maybe haven't even moved to the surface of our heart yet. And she'll stretch your mind that one person can have many different diverse talents and gifts that can be realized. And at times, they're realized when we need them the most. Friends, another wonderful guest is here today to talk about life, facing the unknown, and finding out that you really can do things you might have thought you couldn't do when you take risks and a first step. We'll hear more about that from today's guest as we discuss her life growing up in the famous Doubleday Publishing family, enduring two difficult marriages, moving across the country from New York to Wyoming, writing her own memoirs, and discovering and developing her love for nature and art. Our guest, formerly known as Nilcha Doubleday Kings, now just goes by Nilcha, is a sought-after author and an abstract expressionist from Sheridan, Wyoming, one of my favorite places on earth. Welcome to the show, Nilcha. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. I look forward to uh, chatting with you. I do, too. So we're going to start by talking a little bit about you growing up in the Doubleday Publishing family, and anyone would have thought that coming from that kind of well-known family with money, you would have had a perfect life. But in your book that you wrote, North of Crazy, a memoir, which came out in 2016, you describe your childhood years as really tough and challenging. So tell us a little bit about your challenges. Well, mainly I never lived with my family or hardly ever. There were always, um, there were nannies, there were um, French governesses, there were maids, there was a cook, there was a butler. There was anybody but mother and father. And I remember at one point my my family had a plantation in South Carolina, and the main house was on Long Island. <clears throat> and um, my mother decided that it was during World War II, um, there was going to be um, air raids in New York, and they were going to be um, simply trial air, air raids. And she called, and she sent for the family silver. Hmm. And I came home from school and looked at the butler and the maids and all getting the silver out. So the silver was shipped to South Carolina so it would be safe. 
And two weeks later, she sent for her children. Wow. And that gave me a little bit of a message that <laughs> we weren't really very not as important. much on her yeah. mind. Not as important as the silver, obviously, right? Yeah. And the, the, the trouble was I opened my mouth and said things like by the time, well, I remember at age eight I said, I will do what you want me to do. I will be the person you want me to be because mm-hmm. I can't fight anymore. Oh, and you were so little. And tell us a little bit about the sad part of your life, childhood, is that you were actually abused, and I think it was by a family friend. Is that right? Yes, it was down in South Carolina on the plantation. This was a man that I went horseback riding with who um, sexually abused me. Mm. And um, if my mother had been paying attention or was a, was a, if she had she been a woman who was sensitive at all and loving, she would have picked it up because um, a friend of my sister's, my my half-sister, older half-sister, uh, picked it up, that something was wrong in this relationship. Anyway, she didn't. And um, when I finally told my sister after six months, um, I had been told by the man involved that if I told anybody, he'd come kill me. Oh my goodness. And that was repeated over and over. And so when I told my sister, the terror started. <clears throat> and then I was told by my mother, um, you know, don't don't mention this to your father. It makes him angry. Oh, how awful. So it was how in the, that period where nobody ever discussed anything, particularly anything sexual. Sure. Particularly anything sexual with a woman, with mm-hmm. a daughter. Um, I remember hearing that my brother had um, the one ball hadn't descended and uh, how careful I had to be about it. But there was never any of that kind of uh, attention paid to a girl. Mm-hmm. And um, I was the youngest in the family, and my brother got all the attention because he was going to inherit the business and... The money and um, pissed me off royally. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. And how old were you when this happened to you? Were you just a little girl? I was just a little girl when it was talked about. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that was the way of life. Was that the boys inherited? Right. And there was no. He was going to run the company. And when it came time, when I was in. And sort of an, a teenager, I was trained to be a debutante and so go on the marriage market, which you felt like a piece of meat, and find a husband and marry and have children and be kind to your husband and 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 do good good works in order to um, facilitate his career. So it was very controlling, it sounds like, and very much where you're kind of pushed down, held back. But this is what I love about you, is that you broke through all of that. Growing up as a child within that, being fenced in, you know, you grew up to push past that to who you are today, 
which is such a great example for the rest of us. So I first learned about you when I was sipping coffee and relaxing at the lovely Sheridan Inn in Sheridan, Wyoming. Yeah, it's a gorgeous building. Oh, it is. And as I perused the hotel history, I learned that from 66 to 84, you purchased and ran the hotel to save it from ruins. How did you end up in this lovely hotel business? (laughs) And what prompted you to purchase that inn? Because I'm crazy. No, I love that about you. (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, I I moved out. Um, I got separated from my first husband because I got tired of doing the um, the, the business dinners and um, being polite and uh, and not getting the affection and and warmth that I needed. And um, I met a, an Englishman who was uh, working with the Reader's Digest, and we mo- we moved out. <clears throat> And the the reason was um, I had gone to school with a woman out here uh, whose name was Martha Gibbs. She was Martha Walker, and we roomed together for four years at a, one of those Powder Puff Easter school Eastern schools boarding schools in Connecticut, and. Um, I loved the country out here, mm-hmm. even at 14 when I first came out. Um, and that really was because I had seen movies. I was taken by the maid to the Lyric Theater in Oyster Bay, and I saw two westerns and played bingo in between. Wow. And I loved the westerns because they talked, in the westerns they talked, straight talk, they did not talk like home talk, which was like you don't mention anything that is at all painful or that might upset somebody. You pretend it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. You rose above it, as my mother used to say. Mm. So, um, yeah, I love the West and the feel of the West. And I saved the inn because um, I had written a letter uh, to the press about the inn, and I'd never been in it, but I thought that it was an important building, and I I had to be in Hawaii with my mother, and um, who was having an eye operation at the time that they were going to tear down the building, and so I bought it to save it from being torn down because they were going to put up a gas station on that corner. Wow. For progress. Oh, my stars. Can you imagine? Because it's so beautiful. You know, that big wraparound um, outdoor, what is it? The veranda type of thing. The, the porch. Word, yeah. It was so. Word. Oh, it's, it's an so, old fashioned word. It veranda. is. It's so gorgeous. And, and inside, it's just, it's like you walk in and it talks to you. The building talks to you. It's got the beautiful woodwork, the gorgeous staircase, you know, all of the things that make up something beautiful in history, and they were going to get rid of it. I just think, mm-hmm. what's wrong mm-hmm. with well, people? Well, there, there were women, women in the historical society, and even some men in the historical society, worked so, okay. so hard to save that building. They hawked everything yeah. they had. Oh. And, so and you, I was very touched by that. Yeah. Um, that devotion uh, to history that 
was very apparent in the in the local people. Right, but you didn't know anything about running a hotel, correct? I didn't know. I'd never had a job. That's great. So now you've got a huge hotel, and it's big. I mean, listeners, this is a big hotel. And so you are what? You're having to run, you know, the front lobby? Are you cooking? What are you doing No, it went, well, first of all, I had to redo it because everything was in bad shape. Okay. And I had to start, from, you know, from the heating system, all the plumbing, all the design. Um, and first I opened the bar, and... Um, then I did redid the whole kitchen dining room and put in uh, convention rooms, um, but it was a learning process. I had never done building on that scale. I'd done some additions to a house back back east, but nothing on that scale. Hmm. And I had been a housewife. I had no idea how to run a business. Sure, sure. And you had your two little kids there with you, right? And I, yes, I yeah. ended up in the kitchen oh, most okay. days in the summertime. I w- was on the line at um, the lunch wow. time. And at most, when we did big events, because it was always a, it was always a challenge if we could slice off a couple of minutes from feeding 200 people. Yeah. Oh, my stars. So one of your quotes that I love about the Sheridan Inn that really grasped me was this one. And this is what you said. Its importance is more than the fact that Buffalo Bill or any other man slept here. It is our heritage, a symbol of the people who believed in America, believed enough to move west to create a life in the wilderness. They, their spirit built the inn and made it a meeting place that became the center of the community, end of quote. And, you know, the neat thing about that that resonated with me connecting to you is that my husband and I purchased an old 1900s church for a dollar on Craigslist, and we moved it. Don't you love it? We moved it 20 miles to our farm. And they were going to burn it down. And it's so... I know. It's Isn't so, that wonderful? Yeah, it's so gorgeous inside with the tin and the old pews. And I thought, no, how can people just take something that, you know, meant so much to those people? In 1900, it cost them $2,000. I mean, think that's got to be a lot of money back then. And I said, no, we're we're not going to let it happen. So we've been refurbishing, restoring it. I use it for my ministry And now we're moving a 1945 cabin that they were going to tear down for progress. So I loved that you kept the history alive by breathing life back into the Sheridan. Was the Wild West history important to you back then as it is now? Well, I think it is, you know. I think if we can honor our heritage and learn from it, learn the mistakes it made and learn from the good that it it provided it it produces a um, a foundation for what can be done today and in the future absolutely and it gives children a foundation it does it does and i think that society continues to not value you know the old things while they're mowing it down for progress so i like to remind people and, you know, I, I think it's kind of coming back around. We see a lot of people repurposing things, 
you know, getting old things and making them work. And I think that's so great. What was one of your more favorite things about the Sheridan Inn? Oh, there were so many. I loved the people. Um, I loved working with the crew. Um, I loved the designing. I loved every, anything that was creative. I hated the P&L statements uh, when I was told I had to keep everything in line. I, you know, I knew how to... <clears throat> I learned how to get the... <clears throat> to cook for 500 and to get meals out in a hurry. Um, but um, the business side of it in the the creative business side, I enjoyed and did well. The rest of it, the nitty gritty, was um, was very difficult for me, and I hated it. Mm, I can imagine because you're such an incredibly creative individual with your writing and your artistry that you know that kind of thing again is something that I would see would be fencing you in. Friends, that was Nilcha Doubleday Kings, and isn't she fascinating? There are rare moments on the show when I find a guest that is so easy for me to talk with and has lived life to their fullest amidst hardships, challenges, and difficulties. And Nilcha, for me, was an incredible interview. We're going to hear more from her next week on my show, but I want to encourage you that you're going to want to order that book she's written. It's called North of Crazy, a memoir. And you'll be able to learn more about her incredible artwork at Nelcha, N-E-L-T-J-E dot com. As we think about today's topic and wonder about how we can live a life that is deep and meaningful, aside the fact that we do have obstacles, and whatever you're thinking your obstacles are, this show hopefully will help you start to realize that there are answers, that there's peace, that there's hope, that there's help from God. What are you facing today that's a challenge? Is it your health, your finances, a job, your family? Perhaps you have no friends or you feel alone. Maybe you believe that you are called to be something, but you don't see how you can get from where you are to where you want to be. Well, here's my friend Tony Guerrero, well-known jazz artist, author, and nonprofit director, as he delivers some of my favorite thoughts on this topic. Hi, listeners. This is it. This is your one life. When we talk about finding your best life, it's not meant to imply that you have a bunch of separate lives to choose from. Your best life, your worst life, your exciting life, your forgettable life. It's really all one life rolled into one cacophony of good and bad, memorable and forgettable, happy and sad, victorious and defeated moments. As Christians, we believe that our lives in Christ are eternal and that after this life here on earth, we move on to the next life in heaven. But really, it's the same life. Death is not a split between two different lives. It's a blip, a blink in one life. You will be here, then there. After all, our lives aren't our bodies, but our souls. And if our souls are to go on eternally, and at no point cease to exist, then our lives in heaven are really a continuation of this life here. It's the same life. In the quest for our best life, people often search for some form of heaven on earth. But there is really only one thing we can do on earth that will resemble heaven, and that is worship. Our eternal lives in heaven will be filled with the worship of our glorious Creator. After all, it is this that we were created for, to worship Him. If that is true, and it is, then we can only achieve our best life 
when we are completely fulfilling our true purpose for existing. In heaven, we will be living in our purpose, and it will be better than anything we can imagine now, but God has allowed us a precious glimpse of heaven here on earth when we worship him. Sadly, we often let the opportunity to worship slip through our busy hands. Our best life is available to us at every moment of the day, however, it is often our decision to ignore it. In a nutshell, your best life is one that is full of worship, and worship is a decision. So you have the power to truly begin your best life now by simply worshiping God in everything you do. Our church culture often presents worship as a time for singing praises, and to be sure, this can be a part of it. As a musician, I am grateful that God accepts my music as a form of worship. But singing music to God is simply one way to worship. The fact is every moment of every day is an opportunity for worship. Worship is, at its core, honoring God. Thus, when you serve someone in need, you are worshiping. When you talk to God in prayer, you are worshiping. When you intentionally guard your heart and your eyes from evil, you're worshiping. When you avoid gossip, you are worshiping. When you lovingly correct your children, you're worshiping. When you conduct your business ethically, you are worshiping. When you mourn and cry out to God, you are worshiping. When you love others, you are worshiping. But in all of these and many other possible examples, the worship isn't just the act, but an intentional committing of your thoughts and deeds to honoring God. Basically, whenever we live our lives, every moment, thought, and deed as an act of worship dedicated solely to God, then we are living our best life. Worship the Lord your God, your Father who loves you and created you for worship. Your best life can begin now. This is Tony Guerrero with Everyday Worship. Thanks, Tony. In our Bibles, we read about a woman named Ruth who broke the stereotypical mold. Here's a little bit about her story. There was a great famine across the land, and many people were moving to foreign lands to find food for their families. During this time, a man from Bethlehem named Elimelech took his wife Naomi and his two sons, Malin and Kilian, and went to Moab to search for food. They ended up staying there to live. Elimelech died, but Naomi and the sons stayed in Moab. The two sons married Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth. Both sons also passed away, leaving Naomi with these two daughter-in-laws. Naomi heard that the Lord helped the people of Israel and food had been provided back home. She decided to go back to Bethlehem in Judah and told Orpah and Ruth to stay in Moab and find new husbands. While Orpah returned to her mother's home, Ruth clung to Naomi and told her that she would stay with her and that Naomi's God and people would be her God and people. This was a complete mold breaker. It would have been the norm for Ruth to stay in the area and find a new husband. But she was called to stay with her mother-in-law and help her. When they got back to Bethlehem, Ruth went during harvest to gather leftover grains in the fields of barley. She worked so hard following the harvesters in a field that belonged to a man named Boaz, a relative of Elimelech. He was very kind to Ruth, and when Ruth asked him about his kindness, he said that she had been kind to Naomi, and the Lord would bless her and reward her. Boaz eventually married Ruth, and they had a son named Jesse. Jesse would be the father of King David, and from all of the relatives from that line comes Jesus Christ. Ruth broke the mold that others expected her to stay in. She moved out of what she knew and was challenged to become something different, something better. 
But if tragedy had never struck, if sorrow hadn't paved the road, she would have never walked towards something outside of the lines of the norm. What can we learn today from the story of Ruth? Well, first, let me encourage you to pick up a Bible and read the entire story. It's great. Then, let me encourage you with these three top things I feel that God told me about the story. Number one, change frequently comes whether we want it or not. Number two, when we are faced with a decision, most likely the easiest decision isn't as productive in stretching us or making us our best. And lastly, number three, great things can come out of trusting God and breaking the mold of what people think we should or should not do. Because of Ruth's choice, she ended up serving her mother-in-law, blessing her future husband, and marrying a wonderful, hardworking farmer who loved her and gave her a son who was an important piece in Christianity. I love that story. Well, next week we're going to continue with Nelcha's story. She's encouraging, hardworking, funny, and she, too, is a mold breaker. Someone who you heard knew nothing about running a business, let alone a hotel. That never stopped her. She took what she did know, threw herself into it wholeheartedly, and used her gifts, gifts she didn't even know she possessed. Now, I'm a firm believer that God will provide the people and talents that we need to do whatever we are called to do, just as he provided for Ruth. Listeners, whatever God's doing in your life right now, listen for his voice. Forget the naysayers. Forget the part of your personality that tells you to give up, to quit, says it's too scary or too hard. And listen to the voice of God who tells us in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Let me pray with you. You are an amazing God who created us to give our gifts for your glory. Jesus, help us not to stay in the molds that are prisons. Help us not to be held back by ourselves or others. Help us to break through and become exactly who you want us to be, who you need us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, stay tuned for part two with Nilcha Doubleday Kings next week on Your Best with Kathy Weckworth. Friends, if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it on iTunes and please give us a favorable review so that other people can listen to the show and enjoy it as well. For more encouragement and hope, log on to our website at bestlifeministries.com. And for more information about me, you can log on to kathyweckworth.com. Hey, thanks for being with us today. And until next time, I encourage you to go out and be your best. Yeah.